We're in John chapter 20 this morning, verses 24, and we'll be reading through verse 31. Uh, so we're, we're sort of at the end of the book. Uh, if you remember, uh, we're going through the Gospel of John, not chronologically, but sort of thematically, um, different, in different volumes. And right now we're in conversations with Jesus, and we're going to be looking closely at a conversation between the disciples and Thomas, and then Jesus and Thomas. It's one of my favorite stories uh, in the Bible, so bear with me. We're going to have like four endings. This is going to be like Lord of the Rings 3, okay? Uh, so you're like, okay, we're done. We're not done. Okay, we're going deeper. As Heath likes to say, there's more grace. There's more to find here. Um, so let's read together. Again, this is John chapter 20. If you have a pew Bible, that is page 907. Um, and we will read together. So this is after Jesus has risen from the dead. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them, the disciples, when Jesus came. So Jesus had already come to the disciples in the room behind the locked door. But Thomas wasn't with them. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. That needs an exclamation mark there, right? <laughs> we've seen the Lord. No, we've seen the Lord. We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, that's where the spear went, I will never believe. Wow. Verse 26, eight days later, so that's the Sunday after Easter, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Glad they have an exclamation mark there, okay? Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you, dear reader, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen? Amen. The end. All right, you can have a seat. Kind of feels like the end, doesn't it? The end of the book. Uh, there is one more chapter, uh, which is often called the epilogue. Um, scholars will sometimes say this was like the original end of John, and then they added the one later, which is, you know, scholars love their hot takes, okay? That's probably not true. Uh, but it does feel like an end to the book. There's this purpose statement and, and everything. So it's about the restoration of Thomas. And then in chapter 21, we have the restoration of Peter in the epilogue. And we'll talk more about why John might end his book that way. Um, and so this is a really, really important text. It's a climactic text. Everything has sort of been leading up to this moment. And if we sit and we dwell with this story as the 
carefully crafted work of art that it is, it can illuminate us. It can move us from disbelieving to believing. It can bring us from death to life. That is the power of God's word. The power of God's word, Jesus, whom we encounter through God's word, the scriptures. And I'm believing that for us today, that this, this text, as we, sit with, uh, as we sit with it, it can move us through God's Holy Spirit, as God's Spirit works through his word. So let's start with a, a question. Who is Thomas? Who is Thomas? Well, Thomas is one of the original 12 disciples, the OGs, okay? He's one of the original 12. And what do we commonly call Thomas? Doubting Thomas. Brutal, right? Like, what a bummer nickname, you know? Imagine, oh, there's Doubting Dane. That would be such a bummer, you know? He's in heaven. He's fine, okay? But it's, it's kind of rude, as we'll see. And it's not totally fair. Um, the, the reason for that is this story we're going to read here today. Um, and more accurately, it's the reason we call him Doubting Thomas is sort of a lazy way of reading this story, um, a casual way. Uh, you know, when you just superficially read this story, it sounds like Thomas is this childish, demanding, petulant man who, you know, got to follow Jesus like in the flesh for three years. And yet, you know, all the miracles weren't enough for him. So Jesus has to barge in and shame him into believing, um, you know, and just like, what's wrong with you? You know, Thomas, like, why can't you just be like everyone else and get it together? Why do you need this dog and pony show? You know, those who don't need all this are much more blessed than you, Thomas. It's like the story of Jesus showing up and showing his wounds to sprinkle salt in Thomas's wounds, right? Um, that's how I read it, and if that's how you see, see it or saw it, that picture of Jesus shaming doubters, I want you to take that picture, crumple it up, and throw it away. Okay, and prepare to encounter the story uh, fresh, maybe for the first time. Because we're going we're gonna to bring a different question to Scripture today. The, the questions we bring to Scripture really, really matter. Um, we're not going to ask the question, what's wrong with you, Thomas? <laughs> Why are you such a doubter? Uh, we're going we're gonna to ask the question, what happened to Thomas? What happened? Uh, curiosity creates a better community than condemnation. Okay, so we're going to come with that curious question, what happened to Thomas? So who is Thomas? Uh, his name, his, his, which you might call his title, Thomas means twin, and maybe he just was a twin. That's why people called him that, you know? People had names like third and fourth, uh, really, like in the Bible in this time. Um, They're not very creative. Um, and all we would know was that he was twin if we only had Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's just kind of named there in the middle of the pack with the rest of the disciples. Um, and so we wouldn't really know anything about him. But John, likely writing his gospel uh, years later, he seemed to feel that Thomas's story needed to be told. Uh, there's something maybe about Jesus that we can only see through Thomas. So who is Thomas? Well, he has two other lines in the Gospel of John. Two other lines, uh, which is not much, but they're telling. So the first comes at about the halfway point of the book. 
um, when Jesus' friend Lazarus had died. And Jesus' disciples, um, or Jesus decides that he is going to travel back to Bethany, where uh, Lazarus and his sisters live in the region of Judea. And he decides he's going to go wake Lazarus up. He's going to go give him life that his disciples might believe and have life. But the disciples are not having it, and they protest. And they say, Jesus, um, they're trying to kill you in Judea. This sounds like a bad idea. Maybe we should have gone earlier, you know. Uh, and, but Thomas says this very telling line. He says in verse 16 of chapter 11, Let us also go that we may die with him. Who does that sound like? Sounds like Peter, doesn't it? Sounds like a very Peter-ish kind of line. Right, who is Thomas? Thomas is the guy who says, let's go die with Jesus. Like he's, he's, his motto is, let's go. You know, he's the guy who shows up. You can count on Thomas to be there. Like if you're going to get in a fight, you're bringing James and John, the sons of thunder. Okay, but Peter and Thomas are showing up, invited or not, and they're throwing the first punch, okay? Um, this was my friend Neil growing up. Like, I didn't want to get in any altercation at all with anyone because Neil was coming in from the side and throwing a punch. Like, we all had to keep it calmed down, okay? That's Thomas. Like, you don't doubt Thomas. Thomas is your guy. He's loyal. He is committed. Thomas shows up. And we see this again. His second line comes uh, in the upper room shortly after Jesus washes his disciples' feet and they share a meal together. And at this point in the story, the disciples are rattled. They're shooketh, okay? They are freaking out. Jesus has just broke the news that one of them will betray him. And Judas has slipped out into the night to do just that. And then Jesus tells them that he's going somewhere and that they can't follow him. After three years of following him, Thomas or Peter, Jesus says, you cannot follow me now. And of course, who's the first to speak up is Peter. Peter says, why? I will follow you anywhere, Lord. I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's my job. I'm going to lay down my life for you. And in fact, you will deny me three times before the sun rises tonight. And you can imagine, what's the atmosphere like after this? It's just a stunned, troubled silence. And so Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. And he reassures them that though they cannot follow him now, because the Spirit has not yet been poured out on them to give them strength for that. They cannot follow him now. Ultimately, he assures them, they will be with him again. But Thomas is not reassured. Thomas is anxious to show up and to be there for his friend. And he he speaks up now that Peter has been silenced. And he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Verse 5 in chapter 14. And this is the occasion for one of Jesus' most famous lines in all of the Gospel of John. He says, I am the way. Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
If you had known me, you would have known my father also. Thomas doesn't fully get Jesus yet. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And with that mysterious line from our Lord hanging there, Thomas fades from the story. Jesus is betrayed. He is arrested. He's abandoned by his friends. He is tried. He is denied. He is crucified. And he is buried. And Thomas of let us go and die with him fame is nowhere to be found. And on Easter Sunday, it's not Thomas who rises up early in the morning to go to the tomb. It's a group of faithful women who go to the tomb and find it empty. And they go and tell the disciples, but it's not Thomas who runs to the tomb. Do you remember who it is? It's Peter and the beloved disciple, likely John. And Peter is still traumatized He's still processing. He has not been restored himself. But John, it says, sees the sign, the empty tomb, the ultimate sign, and believes. And Jesus then shows up for the first time. He shows up to Mary in the garden. And Mary runs to the disciples and testifies, I have seen the Lord. I've seen the Lord. Do they believe her? They do not. They don't believe her. They go and they hide in their fear and in their doubt and they lock the door. And Jesus shows up through the locked door and he shows them his wounds and they believe. But where is Thomas? Where is Thomas? Where is loyal Thomas? Who is Thomas? I wonder if this is the question that that Thomas is wrestling with at this point in the story. Like, who am I? I was the most committed disciple in the inner circle of the Messiah himself. Like, I believed. I bought in. And then he was crucified? Who am I now? And who is Jesus? Who was this Jesus who really seemed to know me? Who am I? Who is Jesus? Anyone in here familiar with the pain that Thomas is experiencing in this moment? And have you ever considered how it is the most committed who get the most hurt when things fall apart and end? When you are betrayed or abandon in a relationship that meant everything to you, that you identified deeply with. Could be a romantic relationship, a marriage, um, could be a group or a whole church community perhaps in your past, um, a band you were a part of, whatever it may be, a friendship. There is no pain quite like it. And interestingly, um, sometimes when you lose something you identify deeply with, it can feel as if you were betrayed, even if no one actually personally betrayed you. That's what it can feel like. And this is what happened to Thomas. right? Judas, who is another Peter and Thomas type, a fiery guy in the disciples, he betrayed Jesus. He straight up sold Jesus out. But 
Thomas feels betrayed by Jesus. He feels betrayed. The pain is deep and it has driven him into isolation. He is no longer himself. He is no longer the guy who shows up. When Jesus shows up, Thomas is not there. What happened to Thomas? John uniquely seeks to show us that after the trauma of the crucifixion, Peter and Thomas... The most committed of Jesus' disciples, they need specialized care and restoration. The most committed are the most hurt and thus need the most care. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus is going to show up for them. Jesus is going to restore them. That's what this story is about. The center of this story is not doubting Thomas. It's the crucified and risen Jesus who shows up for his friends and restores and heals. He doesn't just die for them, but he shows up for them and restores them and heals them in their community. So the disciples, right, they, they came looking for Thomas and they repeated Mary's testimony to them. We've seen the Lord. And Thomas says, no, I've seen too much. I've seen too much. And he uses this graphic language, right? I need to see his scars, his wounds. I need to stick my finger in them. I need to stick my hand into his side where the spear was plunged into his flesh. Oh, right? It's graphic language. I will never believe, he says. No way. This this guy's hurting. And a week goes by. A week. A week goes by and it's Sunday again. And the disciples gather as we do on Sunday. This time, Thomas shows up. I like to think that the disciples like dragged him to church. <laughs> you know, they got their friends, they got their friend there. And he doesn't believe, but he's there with his brothers behind the locked door again. And you can picture maybe the disciples are like praying earnestly. Jesus, would you show up for Thomas like you showed up for us? Maybe some little part of Thomas is praying too. And Jesus, again, shows up through the locked door. And he's going to give Thomas the exact experience of his brothers. Thomas is not going to miss out. And so Jesus says again for the third time, peace be with you. This time he finds Thomas He looks right at him. He says, put your finger here. Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And apparently that is enough. That that is enough. Like John before the tomb, Thomas before the wounds of Jesus, sees and believes And it's this moment that elicits, that that calls forth the most profound, the most theologically loaded, the most climactic confession of John's gospel and of the whole New Testament. He shouts out in surprise, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Remember that Jesus said to Thomas, if you'd known me, you'd have known my father also and Thomas now sees 
Thomas now knows, he gets it, as Heath emphasized last week, to see Jesus is to see the Father. He was lost, but now he is found, my Lord and my God. But like I said, that's not the end of the story. This next verse 29 is where we tend to get this idea that, that this story is about Jesus shaming, doubting Thomas. Um, and that's not totally our fault, because look how this is phrased here. Have you seen because you have believed? Or because, or sorry, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those, okay. Um, blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. So let's look at this in some other well-known translations that maybe some of you regularly read. Okay, so this is the NIV, New International Version. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. New Living Translation. You believe because you have seen me. Blessed are. Okay. King James Version. Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are. What's the difference? Anyone spot it? The question mark. Yes, the question mark. There are no question marks in the Greek, okay? That is a, an interpretation that rather profoundly changes the tone, doesn't it? Have you believed because you've seen me? <laughs> you can almost hear the in between that and the blessing, right? Uh, what's really happening here? Is Jesus shaming his friend Thomas for needing to see his friend Jesus again after walking with him for three years? No. And look at the next verse, okay, which in our Bibles is usually separated into a whole other section, but it's right here part of the same section, okay? Verses 30 and 31 turns to us. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you and I may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This line directly follows the line before. So John has a point here, and the point is not to shame Thomas. The point is to show us that though Thomas was not there that first Sunday, he is no less blessed than the rest of the disciples. And stick with me, stick with me. John shows us that so that we might know that though we were not there with Thomas that second Sunday, we who believe and have not seen are no less blessed this Sunday. We are no less blessed. Can we say that together this morning? We are no less blessed. We are no less blessed than the original disciples, the original 12 disciples of Jesus. Our fellowship, our eternal life, which is our fellowship with Jesus and the Father, is not impoverished through time and geography. That is the purpose of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, so we can know and we can experience we are no less blessed this Sunday. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 uh, I, gushes, <laughs> gushes. Peter says, though you have not seen Jesus, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Amen. Remember, Peter and John 
are pastors of the first ever Christians. <laughs> the first generation of Christians. And can you imagine how awe they would have been in of Peter and John? Like, what was it like on the boat when he calmed the storm? What was it like when he fed 5,000 with that little lunch? You know, what was it like when Lazarus walked out of the tomb? Like, what was that scene like? They, they must have been tempted to worship these guys. And so Peter and John, they write these gospels and these letters in part to say, no, we were just like you, foolish and slow of heart to believe. In fact, we are in awe of you that though you haven't seen, you believe and are no less blessed. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in you. Wow. This is why 2 Peter opens up addressing ordinary believers like you and me. And he addresses them as those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Wow. What a way to address believers, right? Those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Just as Jesus prayed, as we looked at last week in John 17, those who come to faith through the word of the original disciples are one with the original disciples and with Jesus and with the Father. So that is the main purpose and point here in this story. John wants to lead his readers at the end of the book to the same sort of shocked surprise and the same confession of faith as Thomas, my Lord and my God. Through not a visible encounter with Jesus, but through an encounter with the word. Through an encounter with the word. To see Jesus through hearing the word is no less blessed than seeing him in the flesh. We all walk by faith, not by sight. Even if it was, yes, the special privilege of the first disciples to come to faith by seeing we come to faith by hearing but it is the same blessed faith we're no less blessed this sunday however like i said we're not done there's more grace there's more grace um because we're not the first generation of christians are we uh there's been quite a few of us uh in the meantime uh there are about 20 centuries of water under the bridge um and I want to suggest this morning that we in the church in the West today live in what we might call the time of Thomas. Can we say that? The time of Thomas. Time of Thomas. Good job. Uh, we live in the time of Thomas. We today are drowning in misunderstood doubt. If, if we have been in the church with our eyes even remotely open, um, we know many Thomases. We have been a Thomas, or we love a Thomas, or we are a Thomas today ourselves, and we are drowning on our own doubt and fear because of our isolation. See, uh, so mere decades ago in, in the Western church, it wasn't the time of Thomas. We might call it the time of young Thomas. There was an intoxicating confidence in the air that still lingered around until quite recently. We said we will be the generation that reaches the ends of the earth for Jesus so that he will return in our lifetime. We will lay down our lives for the gospel. We will sacrifice. We will open our wallets to send missionaries all over the world. We all heard lots of these sermons. They're kind of Thomas sermons, right? Let us go that we might die with him. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Let's not waste our lives but lay them down 
They're good sermons. They're biblical sermons. But that confidence I've experienced has largely evaporated and it's condensed and it's rained down in a storm of fear and doubt that thrives in isolation. Fear and doubt thrive in isolation and COVID certainly did not help with this. And for, for a few of us, it's like a mo- the doubt thing is like a mostly out there problem that we read about, you know? That we, we, we read about the abuse scandals in, in the church, whether it's Catholic, whether it's Southern Baptist, whatever it is. And we read about betrayals on the left and the right and of young people leaving the church never to return. And for a few of us, it makes us very anxious. And we want to know, like, who do we blame? And how do we fix the problem with, with programs and policies and such? The thing is, you don't fix people. You don't fix Thomas. And we shouldn't abandon the Thomases in our midst either. Because if it's not out there, if it's not an out there thing, but it's in here, like if you've been betrayed, if you've been abused, you know exactly what it means to be behind that locked door, seeing you've seen too much to believe again, to trust again. To trust the church? <laughs> yeah, right. You know that feeling deeply. There's a uh, popular quote from uh, the popular Arabic uh, poet Khalil Gibran that always stuck with me, and I didn't know why. The quote is this, Doubt is a pain too lonely to know that faith is his twin brother. Doubt is a pain too lonely to know that faith is his twin brother. And it struck me this week that he uses the word twin. I don't know if he had Thomas in mind when he said that. But doubt is painful and lonely, right? This is why doubters often find refuge in communities of other doubters. Uh, doubt is, is painful and it's lonely, but if we could see rightly, we'd see it's like this close to faith. It's much more close than just not caring, being apathetic or agnostic. But even so, we believers, we can sometimes find Thomas's doubt, the doubt of Thomas's in our midst, a little disturbing. kind of ruffles our feathers, you know? It's just easier to, to blame the doubter for their doubts and to group them and to label them than it is to sit with them And listen for the story of pain behind their doubt. There's always a story of pain behind doubt. Part of being a follower of Jesus is learning to listen for the story of pain behind the doubt. Not what's wrong with them. Why can't you be more like me? (laughs) What happened? What is your story? So whether we are a Thomas here among the disciples this morning but not believing or we know and we love a Thomas, let's look a little closer at how Jesus restores Thomas. Picture the scene. There he is. Thomas is hurting. The door is locked. He's absolutely refusing to believe unless Jesus shows up for him and meets his stated conditions. And what does Jesus do? Does he avoid Thomas? Or does he say, no, You should believe because of ABC logical proof. What's the matter with you, Thomas? No. First, he comes through that locked door. He seeks out Thomas. He enters into that painfully awkward space 
or Thomas might actually reject him. He doesn't grab Thomas by the shoulders and shake him. He doesn't grab his hands and force him to to touch him, but he comes into his space and he sees him and he shows the wounded Thomas his own wounds. And he says to him, believe. Believe. See, Jesus knows something we forget about Thomas's and about doubt. Thomas wants to believe. He wants to be sought out, and he wants to be seen. One of my favorite quotes from Dr. Kurt Thompson, he says, we're all born looking for someone looking for us. Thomas wants to be seen. Thomas wants to be blessed. See, only twice in John does Jesus announce a blessing. Only twice. The first one is in chapter 13 when he says, blessed are those who love one another. Not just know we're supposed to do that, but do it. Blessed are those who love one another, and blessed are those who believe. Thomas wants to believe and love. He wants to be blessed, but he's tried that, and he got hurt, and now he is alone. How can he believe and love again? See, if those who, who doubt irritate you, you know, and you find yourself needing to avoid them or argue with them online or whatever, uh, it's possible. It's because our own belief and love are, are a bit fragile. And that's okay. But can we see how not fragile Jesus is? He's not offended. He doesn't keep his distance or need to argue with Thomas. He seeks him out, sees him in his woundedness, displays his own wounds, and invites him to believe. Like, let's go, Thomas. Let's go. Be born again. You can be the believing, the loving man that I made you to be again. Some of us need that permission, I think, this morning. You can believe again. You can be restored. You don't have to be cynical. You don't have to be lost. You can be a child again. You can believe, Thomas. Um, if you can't tell, this sermon's a little personal for me. <laughs> um, I've been a Thomas at several points in my, my life. Uh, the most dramatic was about five years ago. Uh, and I haven't told this story like in the pulpit, and I won't go into all the details. Um, but about five years ago during seminary, I was unable to believe. Like as a pastor in seminary, I, I stopped believing. It wasn't because of my professors. It wasn't because of politics. It wasn't anything like that. It was pain. It was pain. I asked Heath for like almost a month off. And by God's grace, he gave it to me. Um, I was in pain. I felt lonely. And I only found like the strength to keep showing up, even if just physically, to church and wrestling through my questions. Because what happened was mature members of this congregation kept showing up for me and showing me their own wounds and their own doubts when they were young, whatever it is, and your own stories of betrayal and and unbelief. And you weren't afraid or insecure because of my doubt. You saw the pain behind the doubt and you sought me out and you saw me and the Spirit worked in that space and saved me and rescued me. And friends, yeah, amen, thank you. Um, John wants us to know that Jesus restores Thomas's, that he wants to bless 
and heal you and the Thomases that you love. That's his heart. Not to shame you. He restores Thomases. He wants us to believe and love again and be blessed. So much so, in fact, and this was my experience, he will allow our false confidence, our let's go die with him, he'll allow that to be painfully revealed in such a way that to believe and love again, it's going to have to be his strength. He will teach us to walk by the Spirit in faith and hope and in love. So, fifth ending here, okay? <laughs> How does renewal and restoration happen? How does it happen when we are in fear and in doubt and alone? Renewal happens in community. It happens in community via the Lord our God who shows up and shows us his wounds. We have a wounded Savior. We have a wounded Savior, and that's who we follow. And following Jesus, then, means showing up. It means showing up, having the courage to show up. And in the time of Thomas, it will involve learning to sit in the stories. Learning to sit in the stories of the doubting, hearing the stories of pain behind the doubt. Following Jesus doesn't mean shaming doubters, but sharing our own wounds and doubts, right? It's not what's wrong with you, but what happened to you, because here's what happened to me. As James puts it, or Jude puts it, have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. Could have been the whole sermon. <laughs> when we show up for each other in prayer and in sharing Sunday by Sunday, day by day, as the disciples did, we can know that Jesus will show up too. Let's pray together, VCC. Father, thank you for your marvelous and majestic mercy. God, for your word, you didn't, you didn't have to save us. You didn't have to take on flesh and dwell among us. You didn't have to inspire your prophets and apostles to pen these brilliant works that we can meditate on our lifetime and see something new every single day and be renewed. You didn't have to, Lord. You didn't have to come again that second Sunday and restore Thomas, but you did. You don't have to show up this morning and restore the souls of those who feel alone, of those who were dragged here, of those who are in pain, of those who still have so many questions about what in the world is going on. Lord, you don't have to, but you do. You're faithful and you're true. And when, even when we are faithless, you remain faithful, as your word says. So God, we, we, we love you. We believe. Help our unbelief. And would our remaining time of eating and drinking together and singing praises to your name, would it bring joy to your heart? Because your joy is our joy. Because you have invited us in to the fellowship that you have in yourself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So may we encounter you this morning. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.